The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Honesty is the foundation for any successful relationship, an attribute that can be difficult to find if you're seeking love online. That's exactly what one young man discovered after finding himself on an unpredictable virtual journey, leading him down a deadly and inescapable path. Join me now as we take a journey into the entangled web of an online romance where you'll discover how what appeared to be an innocent blossoming relationship rapidly turned into a love triangle filled with dishonesty, jealousy, and rage. Brian Baird was a 22-year-old young man living in Lockport, New York a quiet rural town located just 21 miles northeast of the spectacular natural attraction, Niagara Falls. Named for the series of canal locks built around the Erie Canal, Lockport serves as a passageway for boats sailing through from Lake Ontario. It's a place where old ornate buildings flank the streets surrounded by thick patches of trees running along idyllic riversides. Separated from the hustle and bustle of noisy New York City, in part by distance, and second by the breathtaking mountain ranges, Lockport is a place of thoughtful solitude and peaceful reflection. This quaint town is where Brian Barrett grew up, attending Star Point High, just outside of the city, before enrolling at Erie Community College. His aspiration? To become a school teacher. Brian shared a close relationship with his parents, as well as his two brothers, Daniel and Richard, who looked up to him and considered him a hero, labeling him a best friend. Growing up, Brian was known by those around him as a quiet and easygoing kid. His mother, Deb, described him as a sports fanatic, recalling him at eight years old, reading the sports section of the newspaper and memorizing statistics for all of his favorite teams. Despite growing into a solid young man, Brian wasn't as coordinated as some of the other kids he played sports with, but he found creative ways to make up for his shortcomings, such as wearing heavy baseball cleats to informal soccer matches, giving him a more powerful kick. His brother Daniel said he called it the equalizer. Nobody messed with the big kid with cleats on. Due to his size, combined with his shy, quiet nature, Brian's Uncle Harry christened him with the affectionate and fitting nickname, Lurch. Until Brian turned 22, he remained on the submissive side. His parents and brothers recalled when he finally came out of his shell, engaging in new activities with a fresh, adventurous urge they hadn't seen before. Brian began spending a lot of time outdoors, camping, fishing, 
hiking, and enjoying life all around. He even secretly went skydiving before telling his family. For the most part, Brian kept his activities grounded, participating in baseball and football during high school until a shoulder injury sidelined him for his entire junior year. Initially, Brian chose not to go to college right after high school, but instead started working at a machine shop, managing to save quite a bit of cash before being laid off during the winter holidays. In fact, Brian had worked so hard and saved so much money, he was able to pay $10,000 in cash for his first vehicle, a Ford Ranger. Eventually, Brian had a long talk with his parents and decided he was going to work towards a degree at Erie Community College. Ultimately, he decided he was going to continue schooling and become an industrial arts teacher, which his parents felt made perfect sense, especially since kids seemed to gravitate towards him. Brian eventually found another job at Dynabraid Corporation in Clarence, located about 27 miles south of Lockport. There he found flexible hours, allowing him to focus on his studies. It didn't take long before Brian befriended several of his co-workers, including a 46-year-old man named Thomas Montgomery, who'd worked at the company for 12 years. Brian didn't share much in common with Thomas outside of a love for card games. From there, they both discovered a mutual enjoyment for online games on a website used by teens called Pogo.com. Brian entered the website using the screen name Beefcake, while Thomas went by the handle Marine Sniper. At the time of their initial meeting, Thomas was a bit on the heavier side, requiring glasses and sporting a small, curtly trimmed mustache, his head topped with stringy red hair that was receding. He'd also been married for 16 years to his wife Cindy, with two daughters, ages 12 and 14. In 2005, the normally reserved Thomas began steadily behaving more animated at work. Co-workers often overheard him boasting excitedly about a strange new interest he'd stumbled across online, an apparent love interest living in West Virginia, who he was positively crazy about. Around that time, he also claimed he was going to leave his wife and head out to be with his new love. However, as quickly as the romance fired up, it deflated. Thomas suddenly became downtrodden, even depressed. His co-workers wondered what had happened. One colleague heard him muttering about now being consigned to the basement. Not long after Thomas's mood had shifted, did Brian receive an email from a girl he didn't know. Her name was Jessie, and she was 18. The message said she'd been romantically involved with someone named Tommy Montgomery. She claimed Tommy had mentioned Brian being his friend. She told him how she'd met Tommy online while she used the screen name Peaches underscore 06 underscore 17 with Tall Hot Blonde as a primary username. Jessie, seeming distraught through her words, asked Brian to confirm what Tommy's true age was. Apparently, both Thomas and Jesse had been in one of the teen chat rooms one evening when Jesse sent him an instant message. After receiving a few provocative photos from Jesse, 
Thomas decided he'd pretend to be an 18-year-old marine sniper named Tommy. At the time, he felt it was harmless. After all, he had no intention of ever meeting her in person. When Jesse asked to see a photo of Thomas, he produced a photo taken 30 years prior, back in the days when he was a teen in the Marines. What he told her next about himself was loosely based on facts, starting with his physical appearance, describing himself as a six-foot-tall muscular young man with broad shoulders and bright red hair. He told her he was a sniper waiting to be stationed in Iraq. Although it was true he'd been qualified three decades earlier as a sharpshooter, he never actually trained as a sniper or saw any action. From there, things heated up fast. What started out as flirting quickly turned into cyber sex, with the two messaging explicit descriptions about what they'd do to one another if they were together. Wish you were nude. What would you do? Stare. That all? Nope. You might get the magic. Mm, make love to me, Tommy. Brian soon learned that Thomas had been leading Jesse on for close to two years, starting when she was barely 16. He told her he'd come from a broken home, his mother long dead, an emotionally distant father, and a hopeless life. According to Tommy, life came to a head when he was accused of sexually assaulting a cheerleader in high school, which apparently had actually happened in his real life. Desperately seeking direction, that's when Tommy said he turned to the military and joined the Marines. He spoke of covert operations he couldn't go into detail about, and at one point told Jesse he wanted to commit suicide while he was in Iraq. But Jesse had managed to talk him out of it, making him promise to stay alive for her sake. She also confessed to Brian she'd sent Tommy gifts, photos and letters. One gift in particular was a custom silver chain emblazoned with their names, entwined with the words, always and forever. Another gift was a pair of her undergarments. The whole time, Jesse thought she'd been mailing these packages to a sweet and sexy marine, as she used to call him. That is until one day, she received a startling letter from a woman named Cindy, claiming to be Tommy's wife. In March 2006, one of Thomas's daughters had been online when an instant message popped up from Jesse. After alerting her mom to the message, Cindy searched the house and discovered all the mementos Jesse had been sending him. Disgusted with Thomas, but concerned for the teenage girl, Cindy decided to contact her and sent a letter and photo. Let me introduce you to these people, she wrote. The man in the center is Tom, my husband since 1989. He is 46 years old. Jesse was horrified by what she read and messaged Thomas immediately, saying she hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. The promises of love, passion, marriage, and forever had all turned out to be a spider web of lies.
Not only did Brian confirm to Jesse that Tommy was a middle-aged man, heavy set, and balding, he was indeed also married with two kids. Jesse was furious over the false image Thomas had portrayed of himself and began to question how her everything could actually be nothing at all. How could she have been so naive, falling for the shadow of a man who didn't even exist? Brian felt so bad for Jesse. While he and Thomas reportedly had been decent friends at work, he now felt repulsed and disturbed towards the man. How could he have gone to such great lengths to manipulate such a young, innocent girl like that? To help Jesse get over the devastating reality of who she'd actually been communicating with, Brian helped keep her mind off of things by playing online games with her. Soon after, they moved their conversations over to instant messaging, and within a short period of time, Brian began to bear his soul to Jesse. Unlike Thomas, Brian had nothing to hide. He was a young, attractive young man with his whole future ahead of him. He was also much closer in age to Jesse. Brian was mortified that such a caring, beautiful girl had been totally taken advantage of and emotionally strung along by an old man who seemingly thought nothing of using a child for his own gratification. Jessie confirmed her bitterness towards Thomas in messages she wrote to Brian, and together, they made up their minds to make sure the world knew what a sick and twisted mind Marine Sniper really had. Frequenting the same chat rooms Thomas once paraded around in, Brian and Jesse first posted a photo of him, revealing his true appearance. They outed him on forums and instant messenger boards as a child predator, actively accosting him. Jesse even gave Brian her passwords so he could use her account to harass Thomas, disguised as her. It felt like designated karma for such a wicked and thoughtless charade the middle-aged man had played. But despite Jesse publicly attacking Thomas, in private, she hadn't backed away entirely. Unknown to Brian, Jesse had continued to message Thomas in secret. She just couldn't seem to fully accept that the Tommy persona was a complete facade. I ache to be with Tommy. Do you miss it, Tom? More than you will ever know. My heart aches to hear you call me your Tommy. I wish I could be that 19-year-old Marine for you. I know, Tom. Jessie confessed she'd often fantasized about holding Tommy and admitted she'd only drawn in Brian for revenge. She told Thomas how much she actually hurt in this world and how she wanted everyone to feel her pain as strongly as she did. That's when she also promised Thomas she would stop communicating with Brian. However, Brian was completely in the dark about everything going on behind the scenes, and Jesse continued her online romance with him. At some point, Thomas became aware that Jesse and Brian were still communicating and became livid. The two men were now caught in a vicious love triangle, with neither of them willing to back down. Brian told Jesse 
He wanted to come out to West Virginia to meet her in person, but Jesse warned him not to. Meanwhile, behind Brian's back, Jesse continued to stoke the coals with Thomas, promising yet again she'd stop her relationship with Brian for him. That's when he told Jesse he was back in training for war, hitting the gym, and running five miles every day. He warned her that if he found out she was lying to him, she'd lose someone very close to her. At the same time, co-workers began noticing a drastic change in Thomas, often overhearing him muttering vague, disturbing threats under his breath. One colleague became so jittery, he came to work one day wearing a bulletproof vest. As Jesse teased Brian with their ongoing romance, she continued to do the same with Thomas also, but secretly. In the late summer, Thomas discovered Jesse was still speaking with Brian on the side and began sending her venomous messages. On Friday or Saturday, you can say goodbye forever to me and Tommy. Why? We are leaving for good. No. Yes, Jesse. You are having fun in your life now, so it's time for us to leave. No, Tom. Don't take Tommy. He's going with me. You replaced him with Timmy. Please don't say that. It's not true. According to the text I got, it's true. No, it isn't. So it's time for Tommy to be put to rest. I will leave. I wish I had a perfect life like you and Brian do. What does Brian have to do with this? You're not going to forgive this one? You left a few copies of your conversation on my toolbox today. Half the company knows now. Knows what? What you two talked about. No, Tom. How you told him I'm a loser and a predator. I don't have a life. Three hours you two were talking about me. Why are you saying that? My heart will exist no more after Saturday, so I will forgive with an email. And then the Tom and Tommy you knew will no longer exist. No, Tom. You can't do that. Their messages read like a really bad soap opera. But Thomas was clear. He was furious and planned on killing himself. But for real this time. The disturbing revelation and sheer ferocity of the accusations nearly reached everyone in Thomas's life, shattering his long-standing foundation. Parents no longer trusted him around their children at his daughter's swim meets, and he was becoming an outcast in the close-knit community. And then, just like that, nearly three years after it all began, Thomas suddenly went silent. A lot had happened over the past year, and Brian regretted none of it. He told his co-workers how well his relationship was going with Jesse and his plans to drive out to West Virginia to finally meet her. Little did he realize that when Thomas heard his plans, it put wheels in motion. On September 15th, 2006, Brian punched out of work at 10.16pm and walked out to his truck as he always did. After unlocking the door 
he climbed into the driver's seat. That's when three gunshots suddenly rang out, piercing the window. Co-workers still lingering on the property came running, alerted by the sound of gunfire. There, in the parking lot, they discovered Brian. He'd been murdered. When police arrived on the scene, it was still dark. While standing in the parking lot, in the midst of such an incredible tragedy, police learned of the complex and disturbing love triangle between Thomas, Brian, and Jesse. One person who worked at the factory told them that earlier that day, Thomas had actually asked what time Brian got off work. Coworkers mentioned how strange and disconcerting the man's behavior had become and how once Thomas told one other employee he wouldn't be so stupid as to leave shell cases around if he were to kill someone. People who witnessed the insanity over the past few months were noticeably shaken as they confessed all they'd seen to police. However, upon learning of Jesse's involvement in the situation and realizing that jealous rampage had been on account of her, police immediately became concerned for her safety. As they began the massive search for Thomas, police sent out West Virginian forces to Jesse's home in Oak Hill to make sure she was okay. They managed to locate her home using contact info discovered on Brian's cell phone. Officer J.L. Kirk was the one to knock on her door. Expecting a teenage girl to answer, a middle-aged woman opened the door instead. The woman was Mary Schuyler, and she told Officer Kirk Jesse wasn't there at the moment and had no way of contacting her. After the officer told Mary why they were concerned about Jesse's safety, her composure suddenly began to change. The woman, with curly brown hair and thick glasses, seemed nervous all of a sudden, fidgeting with her hands, her eyes darting from side to side. It was obvious she was hiding something, but what? Finally, Kirk got some answers from Mary, but they weren't the ones he was expecting. To the officer's horror, Mary Schuyler admitted she'd been the one communicating as Jesse. All of the text messages, letters, late-night phone calls and presents had all been generated not by a teenage girl at all, but rather this middle-aged woman? Dumbfounded, Kirk couldn't believe what he was hearing. How could this motherly woman be involved in such a nefarious and ghastly circumstance? But Mary wasn't finished. There was more. Not only had she assumed a fake identity and age online while successfully stringing along two men for months, the story got even worse. Jesse was, in fact, a real person. Jesse was Mary's daughter and she had absolutely no idea her mother had been using her identity while spending countless hours online. Mary was a middle-aged, bored housewife and mother who sought excitement and adventure by pretending to be someone else. The fact that she was posing as her daughter made it all the more disturbing. Mary's husband, Tim, absolutely adored her and made sure she and the kids were always well cared for. But Mary wasn't content with her life. She had no career, few friends, 
and very little in the way of hobbies. She found her thrills by striking up an online romance with a person she initially believed to be a teenage boy. She hadn't intended for any harm to come from it, not planning to actually ever meet in person. But there was one thing she hadn't counted on, and that was for Thomas's daughter catching sight of one of her messages. When Cindy contacted her and told her the truth about Thomas, Mary felt slighted, being so blatantly lied to. The irony of the situation completely lost on her. She wanted revenge against Thomas for deceiving her, and did that by manipulating Brian into fighting her battles for her. She never once considered anything would go any further than the chat rooms. She claimed she was just having fun playing games online. She also later told reporters the reason she continued communicating with Thomas after finding out his true age was because she hoped if she kept him occupied, he wouldn't deceive real teenage girls. It hadn't seemed to occur to her just how twisted her actions really were using her daughter's image to seduce men online. Mary later revealed that all the photos she'd sent to Thomas were pictures she'd taken of Jesse without her knowledge. The undergarments she sent him were also her daughter's. Police immediately began to search for Thomas, who initially couldn't be found. When they went to his house and were unsuccessful in locating him, they looked through his computer, ultimately checking the computers of all three parties involved. That's where they found a gold mine of communication. Hundreds of pages of correspondence, where it was clear to see Thomas's increasing jealousy and hatred towards Brian. On one page, they discovered the moment where Thomas first learned of Brian's fresh involvement, responding to Jesse by saying, Brian would pay in blood. Detectives began to wonder how such a violent crime and obsession had emerged over what was ultimately nothing more than a fantasy. On November 27, 2006, police finally caught up with Thomas and arrested him on the spot. They'd already begun to build their case against him with all the evidence they gathered. At first, Thomas refused to confess to Brian's murder, despite all the evidence pointing to him. It was only following his arrest that Thomas first learned just who Jesse really was. The person he killed his co-worker over wasn't actually the person he'd been fantasizing about all this time. He was stunned. But Thomas still wasn't budging and refused to admit what he'd done. In the meantime, an investigation of the crime scene revealed a few compelling clues to detectives. First, the passenger side tire had been slashed and was completely flat, possibly indicating that the murderer was intent to immobilize the truck before Brian even got in. Also, close to Brian's vehicle, they discovered a leather cartridge covered in dog hair, greatly resembling hair from the Montgomery family pet. Officers also recovered a peach pit. Presenting Thomas with the evidence, he refused to give his DNA. What he didn't realize was they didn't need his consent, because earlier, he'd requested a can of Mountain Dew while being questioned. 
giving them the DNA they needed to match to the peach pit found at the crime scene. A photo of Thomas's gun cabinet showing his complete collection also revealed a 30 caliber rifle now missing. The same caliber Brian had been shot with. Thomas brushed it off, claiming it was a BB gun he used to own. The clincher for detectives were phone records that placed Thomas at the scene of the crime at the time of Brian's death. Thomas was held in the Erie County Holding Center for the duration of the summer as his trial loomed closer. His broken spirit, fractured from so much hatred and life in jail, were evident in his features. His formerly bulky, 200-pound frame was now gone, replaced with a wiry, skeletal appearance. His world had fallen apart. He and Cindy were unable to reconcile over his actions, and she began the process of filing for divorce. His mortified daughters both wrote letters to him, expressing their absolute disgust as they cut all ties with him. Thomas didn't even have the fantasy of Jesse to occupy his mind anymore, having learned who she actually was. Now, he was completely alone. In October 2007, Thomas's trial was overseen by Justice Penny Wolfgang, who charged him with first-degree manslaughter. His defense attempted to argue insanity in favor of a lighter sentence, but the peach pit provided too much evidence to give the insanity plea any weight. Instead, Thomas was offered a plea deal in exchange for a guilty plea for a 15 to 25 year sentence. Up until the peach pit had become irrefutable proof, he refused to take it. Now, he reluctantly agreed. Before the sentencing, Brian's father, Dan Barrett, stood up to speak addressing Thomas directly. My wife and I don't understand how this could happen, he said. To gun down a boy over simple jealousy doesn't make sense to us. The defense attorney said, call it an obsession, call it an addiction, call it what you want. He was suffering from a diminished capacity of some sort. Judge Wolfgang sentenced Thomas to 20 years in prison for the murder of Brian Barrett. Thomas will be 64 by the time he's released in 2024. Despite prosecutors searching desperately for something, anything to indict Mary Schuyler for, ultimately, there was no law in New York that was broken with her actions. Mary was spared from both court proceedings and sentencing. However, she wasn't left entirely untouched by the whole tragedy. Once Mary's destructive game and deceitful actions were made known to the public, her entire world turned upside down. In spite of her incredibly inappropriate use of Jesse's identity, Mary had previously enjoyed a very close bond with her daughter. The consequences of her actions were dire. Her loving and caring husband, Tim, was horrified by what she'd done and filed for divorce. Even worse, 
her daughter was so repulsed by her mother's actions, she moved away to live with relatives. Mary now spends her days missing the family who loved her, and she'd taken entirely for granted. Though both offenders in the triangle seem to have wound up with fitting punishments for their crimes, the only ones to truly know suffering are the grieving and loving family that Brian left behind. Once court proceedings finally ceased, the family was at last able to focus on grieving properly, but Brian's absence never gets any easier. Holidays in their beautiful home had become so painful, the family now spends the majority of celebrations away from it. The family has sought to petition the formation of a law that would criminalize future actions perpetrated by people like Mary, who used the internet as a twisted perversion of real life to lure innocent people into cruel traps. As unethical and morally repugnant as Mary's actions were, they never crossed the legal line, and for the Barretts, it's a particularly hard blow to live with. Brian's future was bright, and full of promise. Before his death, he only had one year left of school before graduating. Brian's mother said, in the aftermath of her grief, she watches her remaining sons dutifully, supporting each other, slowly and steadily, moving on into a future that won't include Brian. And that's the hardest part as a mom, not only dealing with your own grief, but watching your family your children and your husband suffer, and there's nothing you can do. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Jeremy Collins and Sammy Taylor for giving us a hand by lending their voices to this episode. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, What Was That Like? What Was That Like? might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation. A few past episodes include... Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake, Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone, Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine, Alyssa, whose ex-boyfriend came to her work and set himself on fire, Whitney, who was shot 12 times during a mass shooting, or my most recent episode with a man who experimented with cannibalism by eating his own foot. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com.
The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E.